Great. Welcome, everyone. I'm William Bloom, and this is the first in a new series of Compassion Dialogues, hosted by the Spiritual Companions Trust and the UK Register of Spiritual Caregivers. We develop resources for people who are spiritual, but not necessarily religious. In all these dialogues, our purpose is to explore what influences, motivates, and inspires influential spiritual authors, teachers, and activists, and hopefully inspire you too. More love, more compassion, more consciousness. Coming up in a couple of weeks, I'll be talking with internationally famous author, scientist and mystic Rupert Sheldrake about the morphic field, God's consciousness and telepathic animals. Don't miss it. But today, with a huge welcome, I'm talking with Terry Gilby, who is CEO of the Fintorn Foundation. Fintorn was hugely influential in my own development. I love the place. Terry was brought in when the foundation was already in decline. Um, COVID had ravaged income from residential courses, and then a terrible fire destroyed key buildings, including the sanctuary. Terry had previously been um, CEO of the Esalen Institute, and you probably know it's a hugely influential center in California in the human potential and modern spirituality movement, and helped Esalen as well recover from what was a, a dire situation. Before that, for a short time, Terry was chief operating officer of Wikimedia. That really impresses me, Terry. And before that, a very senior executive and consultant in organizations, including IBM and Kaiser Permanente, which has over 300,000 employees. So, Terry is very experienced. But in taking on the role at Fintorn, was he given wonderful opportunity or handed a poisoned chalice? We're going to talk with Terry about who he is and his background first before we get to Fintorn. So, Terry, welcome. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. So before we talk about Wikimedia, Esalen, Fintorn, I'd love to find out, we'd all love to find out a little bit more about you as a person, your childhood. You bet where you were born, what your parents were, what you were like at school. Uh, were you a ruffian? Were you a sweet kid? What was going on for you? Where, tell, us, tell us about your childhood. Oh, well, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, I'm thrilled to be here in the uh, kind of in the same list as uh, Mr. Sheldrake. Uh, that's quite a, an, an honor. So thanks for having me. Um, Let's see. Well, I was I was born and raised uh, in England. Um, in I was actually born in Portsmouth, uh, 
way down in the south uh, and grew up uh, kind of in the just outside on the edge of the Cotswolds. Um, I don't really know how to describe my childhood. I was extremely fortunate that I was exposed to just an incredibly broad spectrum of things. Um, I was a curious child, apparently, I'm told. I, I would always be found taking things apart. Uh, I'm not sure I managed to put them all back together, but uh, I was always found taking things apart. Not a particularly successful student at school, frankly. Um, I think I left school at 15 and a half, something like that, uh, quite young, and uh, went out into the world, really, to experience uh, life uh, and everything. Um, so if you had left, a good upbringing. Yeah, go ahead. So, so if you left school at 15 and a half, 16, that kind of insert not having hoity-toity middle-class parents, or, or were you uh, a bit of a no. renegade? You know, I, I actually came from a, a, a really good, uh, I was, I had a very privileged upbringing in many respects, um, but I was just not a good student, um, didn't do well in the classroom. Um, and so just school was not my thing. University was not my thing. It was much more a, a world of practical learning for me than it was of studying the books, although I love books now, ironically. Uh, I grew up uh, essentially dyslexic, extremely dyslexic. Um, uh -huh. I was considered kind of illiterate by school standards and uh, in my early years at school and had extensive tutoring to learn to read and write. But uh, yeah, so no, I, I certainly had uh, a lot of opportunity uh, coming out of my childhood uh, and uh, just chose to find the experience in the world, really, to travel, um, to explore. Um, so let, let, let me come in there yeah. just for a minute, because I have a lot to do with special needs children and children with different learning styles. And quite often, in, in parallel with the neurodiversity, the, the, the different learning style, is, is a kind of disrespect that can happen, which is psychologically damaging for the child, quite separate from the actual learning style. And I'm curious, were you, were you treated okay with your dyslexia? Because it's prior to the much more empathic understanding we have of neurodiversity nowadays. Were you, were you treated okay at school? Yeah, I, I actually think uh, I had a really good upbringing. I have zero uh, complaints or kind of negative uh, hangover from any of my childhood. I actually... Uh, kind of joke with my wife she's like oh you know that's that sounds like such a terrible upbringing I'm like it was wonderful mm. uh, I had a great opportunity I got to explore things that um, some of my peers weren't because they were great students and so they were had their nose in the book um, where I was out kind of tinkering taking things apart putting things back together trying to figure out how life the universe and everything kind of worked for me so yeah it's it's been an interesting journey. I I still am uh I still struggle with dyslexia. So people who receive emails from me, they can need kind of a decoder ring sometimes because mm. I'll write my stream of consciousness. And of course, when I reread it, uh I'm I'm recalling what I wrote, not necessarily what I see in front of me. So uh it's kind of a already a joke around here. It's like, oh, that's one of Terry's emails. So So, so you left school and you, you went to work or you went traveling? 
Um, a little bit of both. Uh, had uh, a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a roam around the world moment. Um, had lots of different odds and ends. I was determined not to be unemployed, so at one point, uh, I worked in a zoo. Um, kept a reptile house in a zoo. It was where one was of it? those things where, where, where I where? Uh, Dudley. <laughs> In Dudley, in the West Midlands, yeah, uh -huh. and uh, you know, and and was scraping elephant dung off the off the concrete, taking care of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, done everything from literally kind of you know, the brown and smelly stuff to um, you know cooking. Uh, Love to cook. Uh, I, if I figured I could make any money at that when I was a young man, I probably would have taken that as a profession and a, and a road. Uh, all the way up to, you know, computer programming. Uh, you know, I, I cut my teeth very early in the days uh, when computers were just wee things. And uh, yeah, so that's that's kind oh, of how I works. spent my formative years. Let me let me try and organize this a little bit. You bet. Because <laughs> I've now got this picture of this 16-year-old uh, leaving school. You like cooking, you like mechanics doing things with your hands you're you're working in a zoo and now you've suddenly brought in that you understand the way computer hardware software works so how did you discover that um yeah so i was i was a really early adopter of the computer world so um in in a pure techno speak this is back in the days of motorola 6800 chips when you had you know, eight LEDs and eight switches. And I think I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 and maybe 14 when I built my first computer at home and soldering right. iron and all of the, the kind of stuff that you do. Uh, and one thing led to another. As I said, I've always loved to figure out how things work. Uh, ended up um, kind of exploring computers. Uh, became a computer programmer, became a systems programmer. In those days, they were- So how, how old were you then? Oh, I was uh, edging into my 20s at that point. Okay, so um, late teens, early 20s, you're learning Fortran or some of one of the advanced codes? Back in the days, that was machine code. I mean, we okay. were programming in zeros and ones at that point. Okay. Um, and then into what- what IBM would consider to be assembler language, very, very rudimentary stuff. Um, moved on into COBOL, Fortran, Pascal. Those were the languages of the day. Uh, very unsophisticated by today's standards, but much closer to the hardware. Um, I was a computer operator. Uh, I did kind of worked my way up pretty quickly so listen, through listen, the let me, again, let, me, let me pause you because I'm actually fascinated, right? So, so there you are. You've got dyslexia, mm -hmm. but the logic of coding suits your brain. Yeah, I can that, see that, the I can see really the flow. Yeah, you, I can what, see the what, flow. You can see the flow, and the, yeah. because there's a, there's an extraordinary rigorous logic to the flow in in computer programming and coding. Yeah, but I I could almost see code. Um, versus it, it actually didn't uh, get impacted by my dyslexia to any great extent at all. Uh, yeah. So I could write code pretty easily. Yeah, but see, I, I could write novels pretty easily, but I was with my sister when she learned Fortran, and I could not understand code. Uh, I, could not, uh, I could not see it. Right? Yeah. There's definitely a really interesting piece of neurodiversity here. That, and I, I freak out if I look at an Excel sheet. 
for example. Oh, wow. Yeah. That no, just I love them. Yeah. Look. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was that was kind of my uh, how I got introduced to computers. I mean, this is back in the days where they had, you know, tape, big tape drives and punch cards and that kind of stuff. Uh, worked through that. Um, and one thing led to another. And the next thing I knew, I was in the technology world. And, um, you know, it's a question of being in the right place at the right time, I think, is is the way that I've kind of grown up. Very fortunate, very blessed in that respect. And then one job led to another, and I would just kind of get pulled into the next job, uh, which has been an interesting journey uh, on reflection. I've definitely been pulled into things versus kind of having a, a defined plan and seeking them out. Okay, so here's a question coming from a different angle. As a kid, and then going into the coding digital world, were you also, did you have any kind of a spiritual bent or a, 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 an instinct for compassion and that kind of stuff? What was, what was going on inside you at that level? Yeah, I grew, I grew up uh, Church of England. Uh, I was baptized into the Church of England um, and kind of had my formative years there. Took a little dalliance over to the Methodists. Because uh, they had a ping pong table, uh, which was great, you know, uh, Wednesday Wednesday evening club, um, and then really kind of stepped away from organized religion uh, and began to explore some of the Eastern religions more. So they resonated with me uh, to a much greater extent, um, and that's that's kind of been my path, which is pulling together. I like the the term spiritual, but not religious. Uh, friend of mine back in the U.S., Jeff Kripal, uh, who's a, a professor uh, down in Texas, uh, has, has, has worked a lot with that concept. And uh, I would definitely put myself in that realm of spiritual but not religious. Had a bit of a falling out with the structures um, and the ways, you know, you, you either comply or, or, or you're, you're not in the in-group. Uh, yeah. And as kind of a, a little bit of a rebel and somebody that questions many, many things. I uh, I didn't necessarily fit in well all the time. Join, join the club. I imagine nearly everybody listening is of, of a similar club. It's almost, wave, wave your hands, everybody, mm -hmm. if that's yeah. a familiar story. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I'm coming back to, I'm, I'm threading into this kind of mainstream career, CV, then kind of coming out of CV, having an awareness of Eastern religions. Does that mean you were practicing anything or was you just kind of hearing about it or sitting in groups because you, uh, you don't like reading so you wouldn't necessarily have been reading no so i i had an opportunity to to have uh, a fair exposure uh into the the buddhist world um but then work and everything caught up with me i kind of got disconnected from that but I would say probably for, for three or four years, I, I was pretty pretty well practicing uh, Buddhist um, in many respects. Um, and then stepped away, started to look at some of the more uh, esoteric Indian religions, um, more from a curiosity perspective, um, really, you know, asking that question of, well, how does all this work? Uh, which is something I come back to a lot. You know how how does why why does this why does why does this happen? Um, 
Why do we put value into these things? Why are we connected to them? What is the meaning of them? Um, and, and then I took a few years off completely, um, ended up many years later back in uh, the U.S. or in the U.S. I, I was a corporate transplant over there um, and got connected with the Episcopal Church there, ended up um, teaching Sunday school in, in mm. a pretty large uh, Episcopal uh, Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, really enjoyed uh, the, the the pastor there, the, the vicar, as, as we would call in England. Um, in fact, Doug and I would joke, he was a great theologian. Uh, we would joke that he was the best heretic I knew. And uh, it was, it was it, wonderful because his faith was so deep, he could actually make fun of it and, and be very deeply curious about it uh, and, and challenge it at every turn. And so he and I had a, a pretty good relationship and conversation around topics there. Um, Let me put a question. After that, yeah, go ahead. So, so what I'm curious about, I'm always curious about this, is the interest in... Christianity, then Buddhism, then esoteric Hinduism or Taoist stuff or whatever it was you got into. Was this going on in your mind as a kind of thought process or were you having experiences that were either heart opening or felt? How would you describe what was going on for you as you were exploring these worlds? Yeah, I, I actually think that my transition between these was more about a heart closing and a disillusionment, actually, uh, which was what, what pushed me away. Either, excuse me, I wasn't finding answers to my questions or the answers I were, was finding just weren't making sense to me. Um, the dissonance between the rhetoric and the reality uh the 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 not walking the talk um i i was i i would struggle with that and then i would look for something else uh so there was definitely a a, a yearning to find um that which spoke to me so here's the slightly intrusive question yeah but, but it's it's were you having a personal experience of God, the divine, the Tao, was quite aside from the inquiry and the organizations. Were you? Did you have a personal experience of the uh, inner worlds? Yes, but I wasn't finding something that I could relate to fully in in the religious side, and I think that was was the part of the problem. Um, it wasn't the the frameworks weren't connecting. With my experience. All right. So this is what I'm trying to be slightly intrusive on, because I know this is of huge interest to folk like us. You know, what was your experience, Terry? What was what was what was going on for you that so that you would know that the the dogma and the structure and the organizations were not congruent? Um I I would That was my challenge. I would have experiences, 
And those experiences, when I sought um, reference in the framework of the religion that I was involved in at the time, it 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 fell apart for me. And that that was my that was my challenge with with religion. I, I think to some extent still is, mm -hmm. um, is that. Uh, when I tried to find a framework that I could translate my experiences through, it just wasn't there. But I mean, the great mystics of all traditions say it's a mystery. I but, love the but the experience is, is, is kind of beautiful and weird. And yeah. So you were yeah. having an experience that was kind of beautiful and weird, and you wanted it unpacked in a way that was coherent because you. You like models. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, like to, I like to pull things apart and try to understand them uh, at a, a more granular level of detail, uh, which is kind of a, a little bit of a paradox when you think about it in terms of a spiritual experience. Um, but that's the, the one side of my brain versus the other oh. side of my brain and, and how that competition oh, goes on. Great, great. So that's I think we're really, I think I'm getting to understand you now. There's this spectrum between, geez, I'm having an experience, yay. And over here, you've got this um, almost genius type model builder, yeah, who wants to put it all together. Mm -hmm. And the mystery, it, it's a mystery, man. <laughs> well, I, I think that's the, the, the lasting lesson that keeps coming back. It doesn't stop my curiosity, but it's not it doesn't have to make sense uh but there's this there's this driving force behind me which goes well let me see if i can just find a framework uh that i can kind of make sense of this in some way shape or form sure that's the journey isn't it but at a certain point i think we realize human consciousness is simply not sufficiently developed to be able to categorize it effectively and uh, yeah there's certain there's the various levels that you can absolutely map but at a certain point it's um we're just you know the more we know the less we know exactly the more the more we seek it the further away it is all right so parking all that just for the moment yeah you had what from the outside looks like a really successful career in mainstream world yeah I mean, and so you, in that mainstream career, presumably, I'm, I'm making an assumption now, which you can push back on, the bits and pieces that needed ordering in a way that worked became human beings, not just the bits and pieces of a coding program. Yeah, um, they... they... There was definitely that involved. There was also just the systems of culture and the systems of organizations um, that I, I also got fascinated with. It's, it's you know, how, how do you bring very disparate people together to get things done? How do you take uh, a group of people who uh, are convinced that something is not achievable and help them understand that they've got everything they need um, they just have to try. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of, of what I've done uh, in prior years kind of in the business world is 
actually I, I joke you know I think sometimes I'm just too dumb to to realize it can't be done uh, so you try it anyway and finding a way to convince or, or or encourage people to kind of step off the lily pad so to speak and and, and jump in and try something yeah that's part of the fascination for me so I don't know whether you can share this or not and we'll we'll move on to Essendon in a minute but before we do these huge organizations you worked for at a very senior level have you got one good story about a change process you either screwed up or was very successful ah uh, let's see um well I've, I've got more of a funny story about being a getting taught a very good lesson once um i was uh architecting a uh a, a deal for a, a pretty large outsourcing and we'd made a pretty big error on the the costing model and and i went into my my boss and said you know um i own this it was my mistake we didn't get it right uh it cost a lot of money um give us a figure well well beyond six figures okay <laughs> and uh um more into the seven figures kind of range uh and I said you know you can have my resignation uh and it was actually a really really great moment because he said if you think I'm going to let you resign when I've just invested that much money in your education you're a fool uh you know you, you're going to be here for a little while uh and you're going to make that back but uh yeah so that was that was one of the moments um yeah that was that was a a really good learning for me around the power of, of mistakes and actually working for somebody who who appreciated the value that could come from a mistake uh i think it was the the genesis of my kind of wisdom formula that i've been working on so yeah generous boss very or, or shrewd well, boss actually a very very smart person yeah, yeah. So, so look and this, this is relevant to fast forwarding to Fintom, which we will come to, right? You were for a, a period of time chief operating officer at Wikimedia. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to put to the side the fact that there were all kinds of not, nothing to do with you, all kinds of shenanigans going on around oh. the finances there and yeah. organizational stuff. Um, but what's really interesting. And I absolutely think relevant to a conversation about the future of Fintel and the future of spirituality, the future of centers that are geographically located, is your insights and experience from Wikimedia, where, you know, I'm, I, as, as a researcher and an author, a novelist, and academic, I am so deeply grateful to Wikimedia for the research it does form mm -hmm. or that the 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 conglomerate of all the various teams and people managed to put together so presumably I, I, this, this is me idealizing your experience presumably going into Wikimedia for a while was like incarnating into a global brain energy field so you as chief operations officer, you have a tangible, embodied, incarnate experience of oh, planet information. And it is it is a fact. It's not it's not a 
nebulous romantic idea that this is it in action here are the networks that are with am i idealizing what happened for you the, the silver lining to the experience yeah a little bit yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay. no i i mean it's, it's it's an amazing organization jimmy wales created something absolutely uh i think probably as impactful we could say even as the typewriter to the world you know uh, it's an amazing organization that is uh, 100 percent funded from small donations, or at least it was when I was there. Uh, we used to you know, put the banner up that said for the price of a cup of coffee. Uh, and that brought in millions and millions of dollars. Uh, I think for me, uh, it was a recognition how much difference in the world uh, access to information and 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 knowledge uh brings to people right it, it is definitely a uh, a major catalyst for people to uh, grow um both as individuals and and in their their relative position in the world it's an enabler um and so you know how you can get that kind of knowledge out to the middle of the African uh, desert, how you can get that knowledge to somebody in a high rise. Um, it makes a huge, huge difference uh, to quality of life, to their own growth curve, all of those kind of things. So the the concept is is amazing. And the fact that it's publicly sourced information, right? these are all volunteers. We want to talk about a global community. My goodness, these are people who uh, commit thousands of hours to just public good of creating well-referenced, well-indexed information. So, yeah. But, so, um, but, but the, the bit I'm, and I'm one of the people who's donated money regularly, just to say. Thank you. <laughs> but the, the bit that I'm interested in is, is if you take a localized spiritual center, which for like thousands of years, if somebody wanted to be part of a spiritual center, you needed to travel. Mm -hmm. If, if you wanted wisdom, you needed to make a journey. Yeah. And if you wanted wisdom that was beyond the religious culture in which you were born, you needed to journey quite a distance. And that was, that was dangerous and, and, and difficult. And when Finthorn and Esalen were founded and all the monasteries and convents and abbeys the world over were founded, they were places to which people would make a pilgrimage, would travel to, because they were a resource of knowledge. I live in Glastonbury, which had the greatest library in Europe at one point, and people would travel here for learning. With Wikimedia is, a, is a, a, the paradigm of it, with Wikimedia, you have this solid example of you don't need to travel anymore. And that changes the game plus if from a mystic point of view everybody is also connected prayerfully or meditatively in some kind of mysterious buddha christ consciousness energy field that's a mystery mystery for us right there's actually less that the whole the need for local geographical centers becomes very different. Mm. Now with Esalen, 
Esalen is um, it's resourced. Its USPs are, are quite startling in so much as it's got the beautiful hot springs, extraordinary cliffs and views across the Pacific. Plus, it's in driving distance of LA and San Francisco, which is filled with people who've taken mushrooms and psychedelics and are in therapy, mm -hmm. doing yoga. And there's just a huge um, arena from which the, it can be resourced and supported. Finthorn doesn't have that. You know, Aber Aberdeen, Inverness, Edinburgh, London. It's, it's not in that hub between LA and San Francisco. It doesn't have the hot springs. So what I'm going to take the conversation towards in a few minutes is what can be the offer of a place like Fintorn in the future? Or is it going to go the route of many abbeys and convents and retreat houses, which have just slowly diminished? They've served a huge and wonderful purpose, right? But before we go there, um, I know that you went through a phase of, I've had enough of work, I've had enough of this kind of ambition, this kind of money-centered status thing. And you went to Esalen and you worked in the kitchen for a month, I did. And, yep. which you loved. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that kind of pivoted your life. Yeah. Yeah. And then they kind of, um, they must have gone, hello, who have we got here? Uh, Terry, can you help us out? <laughs> what, yeah. what, what was it like helping Esalen shift? Uh, it, it was a great experience. You know, uh, we showed up at Esalen actually for a, a work scholar month, uh, which was the the program where you would get a couple of hours education a night, uh, five nights a week. You were there for about four weeks. Uh, and as part of supplementing tuition and that kind of thing, you would work in a department. And I ended up in my first uh, rotation through the work scholar program, as it was classed then, uh, working in the kitchen. And that was a great place for me. I was washing dishes and, and cutting vegetables and just having a great time. Um, juxtaposed against, you know, a prior corporate life. Uh, so I was in my element. Um, it was a different pace, uh, but it was very easy, uh, comfortable work for me. Um, I joke with people that I'm kind of a failure as a serial retiree. I, I, I've retired probably four or five times now and always end up back doing something. So we had returned to Esalen for a second month um, because uh, we'd originally wanted to take a month of Gestalt psychology. We, um, my we? wife and I, Kim. Um, so we were there together uh, doing this this Gestalt Gestalt psychology month. Uh, the they were looking for somebody to help uh, in a bigger way in the kitchen. So one thing led to another. Um, I was there while the uh, massive landslides took place, which uh, literally turned Esalen and, a, and a, a good portion of the Big Sur coast into an island, um, ended up having to helicopter everybody out. Um, they were at a place uh, where there was a really big inflection point from a financial 
perspective, they were they were not doing well financially. Um, the business model was kind of broken. And so I got involved in uh, revamping the business model uh, while we were there. We I ended up with, there was about 20 of us there during the closure. They'd helicoptered everybody out. We were just kind of trying to keep the place going and, and alive. We rebuilt the business model, um, reopened Esalen once the road reopened, and was pretty successful in both creating a, a better quality of experience for people uh, when they came. Uh, they were able to drop in, um, have a richer uh, transformational experience. Uh, and we were able to, to kind of correct some of the financial uh, challenges that the organization was going through. Uh, so to bring those two things together, we actually reduced the number of people who who were coming as participants, and uh, we were actually able to to make it financially viable. And so I went literally from I think it was was dishwasher to CEO in in a period of months there, um, and it was it was a pretty gnarly uh, period, but we were pretty successful in turning it around, uh, and I'm happy to say that it's still very very vibrant today. I'm very tempted to ask you what Gnali-ness was like, um, because I, I, I would be guessing that it's something to do with people who've been there for a while who, had a, who wanted to hang on to stuff, resisting an unfoldment into a new model or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, a, a lot of it is is cultural change. Um, the 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 business side of things is is not that difficult, but cultural change is hard. You've got people who are very attached and comfortable to the way systems operated. And Esalen went through an interesting set of uh, growths over the decades that it was there. It started very much as a come do your work, um, have your experiences, and then take it out into the world. That was definitely. Uh, what the founders had laid out as as their goals, I think. Excuse me. Um, after Dick Price uh, passed away, it became much more of a community there, and people were were now living there much longer term. Dick used to used to say, you know, this is a greenhouse, not a garden. You shouldn't be putting down roots here. Uh, your job is to come here, do your work, and then take it out into the world and and move on. So you know we had to work through a lot of, of cultural issues in that change that was, you know, the landslides closed the place. Uh, and that really helped us in a way. It was, it don't let a good crisis go to waste, so to speak. It was a great opportunity to make some radical change, which we did. Um, and I think, you know, test of time, uh, it was for the better. But yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a big cultural change for people. So that, um, <clears throat> to a degree, will mirror the experience you're having at Finthorn now. Um, so what I want to do before we talk about um, your role in Finthorn at the moment, I, I just want to, to lay out some background for folk who are listening who are not deeply embedded in Finthorn um, or don't understand the... Um, legalities of, of a charity in the UK, including Scotland. Um, so yes, Terry is the CEO of the Finthorn Foundation, 
which is a charity. And in British law, a charity is legally, the people responsible legally for the charity are the trustees. They are the bottom line. And the executive, in this case, Terry and a small team around him, are putting it in one way, they are the servants of the trustees. And legally, the trustees must keep to the um, aims and purposes as stated in the legal documents that created the entity, which is the charity. And they are there to ensure that the executive, in this case, Terry, um, stays aligned with the charitable purposes. At the same time, the trustees um, are obligated under charity law to look after the money and the resources um, of the charity in certain ways they can't just be given away or played with. So at Fintholm, we've got the trustees, we've got the legal documents, we've got Terry and a small team as the executive, and then you've got the community living around it who are stakeholders in this particular game. But ultimately, it's the trustees who make decisions, and the trustees are the ones who pulled in Terry. And as Terry said to me earlier, he was he felt called in anyway. It was a calling to come and work at Fintorn, work with Fintorn. So he lands in um, a very influential spiritual, eco-spiritual community that has been ravaged by COVID, that had a terrible fire that burnt down um, many of its core buildings, including the sanctuary where everybody meditated. And there's also, Terry is also coming into a, a slightly confused, from my point of view, situation because the original founders of Fintorn, Eileen, Dorothy, and Peter, were all of them deeply engaged in metaphysics, psychism, esoterics, mysticism. And then when David Spangler came and helped set up the educational program, he also was deeply involved in metaphysics, psychism, and mysticism. mysticism. And the community, um, in a sense, became the vessel or the platform for the experiential learning to happen around metaphysics, psyches, and mysticism. And it was appropriate that the community be ecological, be emotionally literate. But fast forward from the 60s into the 80s and 90s, and the whole world has changed because esoterics, mysticism, psychism has become a kind of global lifestyle, hugely vulgar. And in a sense, the folk running Fintorn were a bit shy of the psychism and the esoterics. And so here we are, 2023, and Terry, is now in the middle of this circumstance. 
looking to see if there's a way forward, whether you can create, I imagine, I mean, to put it bluntly, looking to see whether you can create a business plan that will make the foundation, the charity viable. Yeah. So how's it going? Yeah, uh, I think that, that that's a, a pretty good uh, flyby there. You know, the it, it is a question of, of how do we ensure that we are good stewards of all of these amazing things that we've been entrusted with, that people have built and the community's built over the last 60 years. Um, I think so many of the organizations like Findhorn, Esselen, um, you know, there's there's organizations here in the UK that are struggling post-Brexit, uh, post-COVID, all of these things that have really impacted the financial side. Um, I think as you highlight, there's there's the whole spiritual side as well. And so, you know, our job as it is today is to how do we preserve the future? How do we build a new future um, of what was a rapidly uh, evolving, unsustainable operating model? Um, you know, you, you, you've got to have enough to cover your bills. I talk about it as the, the, the charity pyramid where at, at the top you've, well, starting at the bottom, you've got this, this economic stability that you have to have. It's kind of like Maslow's pyramid. You've, you've got to build this sustainable, um, an operational basement uh, for the organization to sit upon, because without that, you can't support a community. Um, the community sits on top of that. And of course, without a community, it's very hard to take forward the vision and the mission and to actually have impact in the world to fulfill the charitable purpose. So getting that underpinning uh, is is right now um, a major priority so that we do retain agency over this amazing thing that we have been uh, given to steward into its next evolution. It's come through multiple evolutions. Um, so that's what we're working on. Um, we had to bring down the size of the organization very quickly. And, and as many might know, we ended our uh, education offerings um, on uh, September the 23rd. Um, and we've now kind of gone into an operational pause while we return to that inner listening. And, and we create the quiet and we create the spaciousness to listen to what comes through. Um, you know, the big questions of, of who do we serve? Um, why Findhorn? Why now? Um, how do we serve people? Um, what is it that we bring to the world uh, to, to meet the challenges of today? They're different challenges than they were in 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, but I still believe we we have the fundamental tool set uh, that can support people uh, in in a day where we are facing so many crises every day, uh, crises of, of of economy, crisis of uh, social unrest, and and most importantly, a spiritual crisis too. Um, you know the, the the amount of people that are moving away from uh, spiritual purpose. Is, is continuing to grow. Uh, and I think that that is a, a kind of a barometer of where we're headed as a society. Let me um, get you off the hook on something. Um, as a 
fairly close observer of the foundation over decades and, <clears throat> and the finances over the last few years and having been involved in looking at various business models, it, it was for me inevitable that there would need to be a period of temporary closure because there wasn't enough income coming in to pay the wages, basically. Yeah. And you were handed the chalice of it had to happen under your watch. Um, so I just want I just want to clear the air and say if anybody is blaming you for that, that's unfair. It's unfair. Well, it's, been, it's, it's, it's been building for, from my point of view, for maybe 15 years, actually. Um, and there was, there was a need for a shift. And the trustees in, in, the, in the transformation from one legal entity to another, that was going to be a kind of symbolic way of flagging that we're having a change now and we need to shift the structure. But it, it happened under your watch and it must have... I imagine that was uncomfortable for you to be involved in the redundancy <clears throat> process, but not your fault. Yeah, but I've, I, I've got to give credit to everybody that was involved, not just the co-workers, um, but many of the community members as well. This was done with such grace and with such love and kindness. Um, it could have been very different, and yet people really showed just the, the, the very best version of themselves that they could through this process it is painful when you have to make redundancies in uh, organizations like Findhorn or Esalen any of these places where they have large live-in communities because you're not just and, and I say not just but you know you make a redundancy in a corporate world you you make perhaps impacting significantly somebody's income um, but it's the job that they go to their family is at home their community is, is, is often elsewhere. Their spiritual uh, connection is elsewhere. Uh, here at Finhorn, um, it's it's kind of every level of Maslow's triangle when you do something like this, of, of, of Maslow's pyramid. It's, it's their home. It's their community. Uh, it's their spiritual calling. It is their identity. It's their, their, their economic uh, stability. And so the level of impact that, that a decision like this has on the individual in this circumstances, uh, it, it's just, it's immeasurable, I think. And it was handled with so much grace and kindness uh, by the co-workers um, that I'm, I'm still kind of in awe of that. And I think that goes to the strength of a spiritual practice, right? People, people came here and were co-workers here because they felt called to be here. Um, and I think that that is what got us through what otherwise could have been an incredibly, incredibly difficult process. It was difficult. Um, let's make no, no, no bones about that. So here's, here's a question with two levels to it. Yeah. Um, one would be, how would you describe the atmosphere now? And then are you, are you sniffing at some plants? You got some. You got some. You got some rainbows on the horizon for us. Yeah. What's, that, what's the atmosphere like at the moment? Uh, you know, it's it, it's a moment of quiet. What we're we're taking the month of October, so we we came down to a team of ten. Um, right now we're at about a team of ten. Uh, 
made up of people who have been at, at the foundation for a while. So we, we kept some of that core energy, that core wisdom. Um, this month of October, we're going to try to spend as much time as we can coming together as, as a group. We, we meditate together every morning. Uh, we're spending more and more time talking about how do we work together um, in pursuit of, of, of what is to come. Um, that that's going to continue. Uh, we, we are still having to do some operational things. We're still winding down um, the buildings, spaces, equipment, those kinds of things, and trying to get our arms around all of that. Um, but I think there is hope. Uh, I was in a meeting with, with the co-workers uh, yesterday, I think, you know, and, uh, and somebody was talking about, you know, they're, they're excited um, about what the future could hold for us. Uh, I think there is great opportunity for us. The need for what Finthorn provides is, is greater now than I think it's ever been in many respects. It goes back a little bit to what you talked about. Is it place or, or how do we actually embrace a, a, a global community? Um, not just one that is, is here locally in Findhorn, but how do we reach out? Um, how do we reach back to our origins um, and reconnect with them in many respects? Uh, you know, the core impulse that is so powerful here, uh, the, 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 three principles that that we're built upon the sense of community and how you come together uh, is absolutely a crucial part of what we do i've heard so many stories and, and i went through experience week people might know findhorn for its experience week uh, it is about how you bring people together and i was talking to somebody actually earlier today it's it's not how they're how they're, they're taught through that process, but it's truly how they experience through that process and how they experience each other uh, as a group. Um, that's that's one of the richnesses that that Fendhorn has. And how do we reconnect with some of that work uh, and bring it back into the current context? So I, I think we're going to look at that into the future, but we're really going to spend some time trying to listen um, versus deciding what should happen. Right. Um, spirit led data informed is the is kind of the phrase we're using at the moment to say, well, you know, let's create that quiet moment uh, as our founder did, you know, to say, let's go within, create the space, listen in the quiet and see what does come through for us. Uh, what are we called to do as an organization? Data informed. What kind of data? Oh, I'm sorry, you broke up there for a moment. Um, you said spiritual plus data informed, data informed. What kind of data are you thinking of? Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry about that, William. You broke up again. Okay. Um, you, you said that the way in which you're contemplating your decision-making process is a mixture of there's meditation, spiritual impulse, Plus, you're being data informed. Yeah. And I'm curious as to what kind of data will inform you. Yeah. Well, I, I think we've got to spend a lot of time actually talking to, to people who want to engage with Finthorn. What, what does that look like for them? Um, 
how would they interpret it to collect that information from them? So it's not just listening to spirit. It's also listening to people who have uh, been a part of Findhorn for decades, people who may have heard about it on the periphery, but have never experienced it to understand what is meaningful uh, for them and, and how we can translate what we do into something that is impactful for them. Uh, I think we've got to be very aware of the economics, uh, not to necessarily make decisions based just on uh, the economics, because, you know, we can manifest things. It, it is a question of, of figuring out what it is we need to do and then finding out ways to do it. Uh, but, you know, there there is a lot of uh, data that we can use to support how we answer that inner calling. Let me challenge you on something here then. What I, what I heard you say was that the conversations and the research you're going to do in terms of data is from people who are already engaged in Fintorn, have been engaged, this is what they love about Fintorn, this is how, this is, this, that, that's all history. Yeah. And that history has led to failure. Mm -hmm. And my concern would be that a form of nostalgia, yep. a form of um, adherence to a culture that people are familiar with and feel is valuable, but in actual fact has now become global. I, I, I can't see how that will inform the future other than say, Oh, we're just going to let's let's repeat those same mistakes or the same. It's 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 out of date. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, it's Einstein's quote around you that the problems of today can't be solved at the same level of thinking that created them. So, you know, although we are going to reach very much back into our past, uh, we have to find uh, our future as well. And that may be people who have never heard of Findhorn. So how do we find new groups of people to talk to? What is the calling in the world that is uh, that, that fits the, the tool set that we have? How do we do that? And part of that data is, for example, data-driven piece is finding new audiences, um, very diverse conversations and collecting the input from them around what is the biggest problem that they are facing? Uh, is it fragility? Um, is it depression? Is it uh, connection or lack of connection to spirit? What What is going on for them? And so, you know, if you, if you keep talking to the same audience, as you, as you say, you end up with a shrinking pool because we're all getting older, frankly. Um, and eventually we run out of, of, of people. So we're going to spend some time and invest in how do we connect with, with the new upcoming generations that are seeking uh, the spiritual but not religious, who are seeking the esoteric, uh, and, and how do we partner with other organizations to do that as well? Okay, so, so let me push back again. Because because I, I've I've got a feeling because I, I know I know a lot of the people who are in who are in this meeting actually, and I've got a feeling that what I'm what I want to ask you may articulate what um, they may be thinking and feeling. Um, there are thousands of organisations on the planet who are tuning into what 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 do people need? 
where are the pain points? How can we solve, heal the pain points? And that doesn't make Fintorn unique in any way at all. Um, its ecological push is in no way unique anymore. Its focus on emotional intelligence, literacy, psychotherapy, that's again, global. What Peter, Eileen, Dorothy, and then David, what they all had in common was an absolute commitment to spiritual development in which the concepts and strategies of esoterics, metaphysics, informed what they were doing. So it wasn't just a faith-based exploration. It was, it was one in which the metaphysics was explored, the subtle being, subtle levels, right? That's what all four of them had in common. And <clears throat> that's a unique offer. And it was that vibe which attracted so many people there at the very beginning. Um, and I heard you say in one meeting with, with the fellows that you were, you were looking to honor the motivation of the founders. And what I'm not hearing from you or from the discussions is a, a genuine respect for the fact that Eileen talked to spirit. Peter engaged with psychics. Dorothy engaged with nature spirits and grew the gardens from that. But David was also channeling various beings, right? And there was a conversation about levels of energy, consciousness, expansion. It was, it was a proper mystery school. Mm -hmm. it was a, the, the discussions about metaphysics were part and parcel of the, the, the fabric of the place. And um, I, I think a lot of people listening right now will be going, where's that? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think you, you raise a good question. Where is it today? And, and that's what I talk about in terms of how do we reach back into our history? I think we've got to really look at that and say, who are we and why are we? And is that, is that how do we find a place for that in the world today? Um, I think part of this reaching back into the history is absolutely critical because that is what makes us special and unique. As you said, you know, when I was uh, working on, on the, the strategy for Esalen, one of the things we did was we engaged in, in a pretty broad global uh, tour to meet with a lot of centers around the world. Uh, when I joined Esalen, I knew nothing about hospitality. I knew nothing about uh, the human potential movement in terms of an educational uh, structure. Uh, and so I, I went out seeking what's everybody else doing in this in, in this space. Um, when I landed at Findhorn, there was something different here. You know, um, it it was it was a, an, an intersection of uh, it, it was an intersection that that's that's focal nexus point was in spirit. And, and and that is the differentiator, is how do we reconnect to that? And how does that come through? Um, you know, you, you you could go to Esalen and it was it was it was great for uh you know philosophy and 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 psychology and those kinds of things. And you could go to an ashram in India. Um, but people came to Finhorn for a very specific calling. 
um, we have to reconnect with that and find out where that source is again, because I think we have lost it uh, to some extent. It, it, it is still present, um, but I think how we enable that into the world is going to be uh, part of our way forward for certain. Mm. What an interesting puzzle you have to put together, don't you? Really, really interesting. So listen, is the sanctuary going to be rebuilt? What's happening there? Yes. So the sanctuary uh, rebuild is underway. In fact, it's just outside of my window here. Uh, the All of the groundwork, uh, I think, was pretty much complete. Um, so the next phase of construction will start early next year. Uh, which is very exciting because that's going to bring a lot of energy back uh, into that site. It's on the it's on the original site. Uh, we're continuing to fundraise for that and support the Park Eco Village Trust, who have kind of taken on the uh, the goal uh, the gauntlet of actually uh, doing the construction work for the entire eco village. Uh, so hopefully by the end of 2024, um, the sanctuary will be back and reopened. And you have moved there, you and your wife, haven't you? Did you yes. Did you actually, I think, did, I heard you, did you buy a place? No, the- not yet. Yeah. Um, in fact, this evening, I'm actually coming to you from uh, what was Eileen's home when she okay. was here in Cornerstone, yeah. uh, just around the corner from the sanctuary yeah. uh, in the Eco Village. And yeah, we've been here for uh, eight months now. Yeah, I, I lived upstairs there for two months with Eileen at one point writing a book. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. well, you know it well. Yeah, I, I do. I do. So you said you had a, we're moving towards the end of this conversation. You, you said you had a distinct sense of a, a calling to be at Fintor. Yeah. How did that come about for you? Uh, well, I was actually on a, on a large RV trip around the United States, uh, kind of nine months ago, and I'd been in touch uh, with some folks here is when we when we first visited uh, pre-COVID, um, you know, had stuck struck up kind of a relationship with Fintorn. Esalen and Fintorn were, were sister communities founded close to the same time. And Peter had a relationship with Esalen. Esalen had a relationship here. Um, and so I was engaged in some conversations with them. Caroline had, had said that she was... Uh, going to step out and and take some personal time uh and it just landed with me it was uh they were starting the search for a new chief executive um and it was very clear to me i i can't actually explain it other than it was a sense of knowing uh that despite what we were doing at the time we needed to be here and so I, I put my name on in the hat uh, and we went through a pretty extensive uh, set of conversations and interviews with the community. I think it was a very well done process. Uh, and we were coming, planning to come here just for a two week visit. Uh, and then we were going to go back and there was going to be a much lengthier process. Um, but we got here, the financial situation that the foundation was in. Uh, we were here on the ground for two weeks. We flew back to America, um, moved our RV to somewhere where we could store it. And two weeks later, we were home uh, back here in Scotland. 
and that's where we've been since. And yeah, so we are completely relocated. This is home. Uh, and we're looking forward to it being home for uh, the foreseeable future. Okay. So listen, here's my last last question. I'm very uh, struck by the fact that you have these two facets to yourself. Mm. The, the, the um, mechanical model builder that knows how to organize bits and pieces and get them working. And then the other part of you that just comes from your heart. So my question is, from, from your heart, yeah. how, do, how, do, how, how do you feel about the whole process now, the whole Fintorn future thing? Are you kind of op optimistic, philosophical, passionate? What's going on for you? Um, a mix of things, if I just sit with that for a moment. Sure. Um, I'm I'm very excited and optimistic. Uh, I think there there's there's a a huge impact that we can have for people in the world um, to help them reconnect with spirit. Uh, it's needed now more than ever. I think we've got an amazing group of people to work with here. Um, we've got an amazing group of supporters around the world, um, and I'm also noticing that it comes with a great I, I take on kind of a, a weight of responsibility for stewarding this legacy into the future this is this is a, a a unique thing in the world that has been created out of the energies of thousands of people over 60 years uh, and so there is a responsibility to make sure that we do this um collectively we do this with a great deal of love and respect um and so i i feel a, a sense of responsibility to that uh that that history that legacy um and i have hope um a great deal of hope for us to be able to play a part in in a better version of humanity um you know i think we we are called to do that. And we've got to really look to where, where can we have the biggest impact in the world uh, in that respect? And uh, I'm looking forward to, to exploring that with people. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So excited. <clears throat> it's a very um, satisfying answer. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's, thank you. You're welcome. So um, I think we're bringing this conversation to a close. Um, everybody, um, it's obviously watch this space. And energetically, consciousness-wise, prayerfully, hold Terry the project in our hearts patiently patiently and with love and let's see what unfolds harry thank you for a really engaging interesting enlightening conversation thank you for being so transparent and um yeah it's um lots of love to you lots of love to you and um to the whole of the 
Windhorn project. Thank you. So everybody, um, that's the end of this dialogue. Um, come back to us in a few weeks. We'll, there'll be another one with Rupert and then others into the future. But I hope you agree with me that this one has been um, deep, relevant, hopeful, and uh, appalling for us to be patient, open our hearts, and um, supportive. Lots of love to everybody. And if we, if everybody just waves, that'd be lovely. Either just one big wave to uh, everybody. Yay. Okay, I was going to unmute you all, but the noise would be absolutely awful. Lots <laughs> of love, everybody. Thank you. Take care. Be well. Good night.